Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. And we're back. Easter just happened. Had such a good time. <laughs> Blair's first Easter. Aww. Did not do an egg hunt. We just went to brunch. <laughs> I mean, it would be a little difficult. Eh. It would be Maury finding She's things. Point. Yeah, she just... I was telling Courtney this morning, one of her interns, that she was saying something about how she was in a situation where she had met someone and it was just not going well and so she was just like you know my son needs me i was like oh yeah i can use that uh, my four-month-old oh, text yeah. message me i need to go and she like started <laughs> laughing she's like oh my god like oh. so i thought that was really funny yeah, you but, can always um, pick a call I, oh, yeah, take care. I guess. <laughs> but anyway yeah so how was your easter it's liam's first easter too was Liam's first Easter. He had a good time. He got some snacks. See, an Easter basket. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, I got him a bow tie because for all these that don't know, he wears bow ties because he likes them. Yeah. And I had this one bow tie that was like a flower bow tie that oh, I started yeah. wearing early, like a couple weeks before Easter because yeah, yeah. I was like, this is cute. This is like an spring, Easter yeah. spring. And like we went to the beach a couple weeks ago and like we were walking along the beach and so many people were like, oh, what's her name? What's her name? Like oh. just because he's wearing a flower bow tie does not mean he's a girl. Oh, interesting. Like don't okay. gender stereotype my dog, please. <laughs> I guess. Oh, okay. But I yeah. thought it was really cute because it was yeah. like flowery and right, Easter. Right, right. And it was still blue. It was right, blue but and it then wasn't. it had multicolored flowers on it. Mm. Also, he's, he's... He can pick his own... Gender it's, is he's just non-binary. not real. Yeah. No. What is it we're supposed to say? He's um. There's different ways. Like you could say cis. Like because like I don't want to label him. Right. He right. needs to label himself. Right. He's demonstrated that I think he likes both girls and boys. Oh, okay. But I'm not going to label him. I'm going to let him. Dogs just do their own thing. I mean, he likes his bow ties, so yeah, I'm going to let so... him have it. Well, you like his bow ties. He can't even see the color he's colorblind did you know that <laughs> i do know that he can see the pattern on it there's different patterns yeah different also patterns. he doesn't try to get the bow ties off so clearly he likes it the bandanas yeah. however mm, i know he does not like because he, he tries like. to get those off mm, he, he still wears them sometimes those, yeah but anyway we good hope you easter. all had a good yeah. easter yeah. when this lands and i don't are people still on spring break? I feel like spring break started like a month ago. Yes, for some, like they had last week leading into Easter. Mm. I don't know if anybody's having it out. I know a lot of the colleges had it early a couple yeah. weeks ago, like end of March. I feel like back in the day, like we used to have it spring break either the up. week before yeah, Easter or the week after. It was but never like super. There's so many changes now with like some of um, the districts around us that are like yeah. now ending in May, or right? start date. Yeah, yeah start I guess date, that's true. Because like, I feel like we always started after Labor Day. And like yeah. now a lot of people start in August. Yeah. Well, I remember having a couple years where it would be like you start like a Thursday before oh, Labor then Day and then Labor you do Day two days weekend. and then yeah, you have yeah, three yeah. days. And you're like, why? Yeah. But never like how some of the kids like Well, now, now sometimes yeah. they have like two weeks before Labor right, Day. Right, right, right. And sometimes it's two yeah. weeks after Labor Day. It's yeah. just. Yeah, it's weird. I don't It's weird. But today, we told you this was a teaser from last week. Uh, today, we're going to talk about. Your IEP team. Did we? 
Did we mention that we were? Yeah, we did. About- oh, okay. Because okay. we started talking about how parents <laughs> oh, are yes. an equal member of the IEP team. Oh yes. And we said we're going to talk about this next oh, participants. week. Participants. Yes. So this is going to be talking a little bit more about like who are the team members and what are their roles. So again, we'll like start with the IDEA. And in 2004, the IDEA was revised the language regarding IEP team members. So I'm going to go off of the revisions. So I'm going to list them out and we're going to do one at a time and we'll kind of talk about their roles. So the first is the parents of a child with a disability. Obviously, I believe one of the most important members of the IEP team and is an equal, like we said last week, an equal participant. Their role is not only to collaborate with the school district, but to provide information because the parents know the child best, right? Parents see the child outside of school on the weekends. They have information about this child that the school may not have. So one of the obligations, one of the roles of the parent is to provide information, provide information to the team, provide input. Everyone's going to have their priorities with their child. Some, it's very much about socialization, letting them be who they are. Sometimes it's very much about academic driven. Everyone has their own priorities going into the IEP team. And I think it's really important to let the team know that, especially if like we have some families, like, for example, well, I'll have a parent who wants a child to be in general education for mainstreaming. And the school district will say, you know, academically, there's several grades below grade level, so they're just not going to gain the academics. And the parent says, I understand that. I know that. My priority with this mainstreaming is for that socialization piece because they might say, we're doing tutoring after school, we're doing this. So I'm not as worried or, you know, they may still be worried about the academics, but the purpose may be different. That's where we see kiddos in high school taking an elective. Like, yeah. Whereas you might have another family who says, well, no, I only want them to be in Jenna if they're academically able to do the content. Right. So that's an important piece to provide perspectives. And then, of course, the parents are the ones who are providing consent. And then, sorry. So I thought we were going to list them all. And then go back and talk, or we're going through and talking. About oh, we can one. do either. Oh, okay, I was like, oh, okay, we're are we jumping in? I okay, that's good too. Each yeah, okay. I we clearly I wasn't listening when we were talking about this. There are seven different types of people that should be. Obviously, number one is the parent, and for all those reasons why we discuss that. Number two, <laughs> number two, it says not less than one regular education teacher of such child. And then it says, if the child is or may be participating in the regular education environment. I maintain that that's every single child. Yeah. Because we should always be looking towards CLRE. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you are in um, a home hospital setting or the child is in a residential treatment facility um, and there's you're not having like a transition back, I think there should always be a general education teacher. I can't tell you how many times, you know, a parent will have a question and the gen ed teacher will kind of pipe in and be like, that's how my second graders are, which is a great thing because then it's just like, oh, if everybody else on the team was like, oh, no, he can't go into gen ed because he has these behaviors and then you have a gen ed teacher that's like that's all my second grade boys like it's like great because you're just like oh awesome so then you could handle this child if we put that child in and you know they have a unique perspective sometimes they absolutely do because they have a different kind of class than like say a mild moderate Mm -hmm. special day class the other piece is the curriculum right so a parent might come in and say you know my child's having a real hard time with single digit by single digit multiplication and they want to have a goal in that area and the team says no we don't need a goal well 
a Gen I teacher could be like, because sometimes the reason why a goal is not created is not because there's not a deficit, but because it's that grade level curriculum. So they're already working on it. So a child that's in second grade, something that's within the second grade curriculum would not necessarily be something that is a goal. Unless, say, work at the end of the school year and it should have been mastered at the beginning of the school year, that's different. But, like, we're starting the school year and part of the second grade curriculum, you know, is a certain aspect and we're talking about the child is struggling with that, but the gen ed teacher could be like, well, that's what I'm teaching my kids to. Because goals are not meant to be grade-level curriculum content, but areas of need of the child where they're not meeting grade level expectations. So if something is a a skill that is designed to be mastered at the end of second grade, if we're in October, no second grader is expected to have mastered that skill. So it's not a deficit of your child if your child hasn't mastered it either. Right. So that's an important component that a gen ed teacher can, because sometimes you have special day teachers that only know their modified curriculum. They don't always know the gen ed curriculum. Another area that gets kind of tricky with the gen ed is in junior high school. Obviously, if we could have everybody there at the same time, especially if the child is mostly in gen ed and, you know, they may they have the one of those study hall like classes where they're learning study skills or whatever. It's nice because then everybody's on the same page as to what's happening in history, what's happening in math, what's happening. But oftentimes that just never happens. So what we typically always say, sometimes they'll just have the PE teacher. They, always, I feel so bad for the PE teachers. I, I know, one they of my always clients, get pulled. I know, they always get pulled and it's just like, you know what? Like sometimes, like, I don't need to know what's going on in PE. <laughs> like, you know, and I feel so bad they always get pulled. But anyway... We always try to say we'd like them rotating. If it's 10 minutes, I want them in for 10 minutes. If you could get two of them in at the same time, just because I can't even tell you how. There's always questions. Right. Well, no. Sometimes a kid is doing great in history. What is it about your history class that's different from math? Okay, well, math, that teacher does 40 minutes of lesson on the wall, whereas history is like, and it's always the history teachers are always the best. Like, they're multi-sensory, they're this, they're that. But it's nice for the other teachers to hear I think I had one IEP meeting it was a junior high one and everybody was there and it was probably the best IEP meeting because they all had different ideas of things that they do and we put it all together and we put it all in the IEP so don't be afraid to ask that they be there at different times yeah I've had times where a child needs modifications or accommodations let's say they're hard of hearing or visually impaired right and so we need certain access tools There may already be a lot of things in the IEP. Let's say we're transitioning to middle school or high school. If not every teacher is there, they may read the IEP. But like if you're a gen ed teacher and you're seeing these things written in there, you don't necessarily know, number one, what's the purpose behind it, what it is, or how to implement it, right? So you're sitting there and if you sit in the IEP and the parents are able to talk about like why it is it's in the IEP and the team is all able to talk about it, like that gen ed teacher is leaving that meeting being like, I know exactly what to do. Exactly. So, I mean, what I recommend is like if we're doing a transition IEP, either at the before the school year starts or after the school year starts, that's one where I think it's okay for you to insist that every teacher is there. After that, having them rotate. If, for instance, like the kid is doing well in math and like really there's an issue that's like more a social in like English, you know, maybe it's okay and it's an addendum, then okay, maybe we're only inviting one. But like a lot of times I have teams where they'll bring in the PE teacher. And then they'll have something written in the present levels from the other teachers. But it's like a two-sentence thing. And it, what, what happens if the parent has questions? Right. Then the parent can't ask them. And then we have to wait and get more information. 
right? Or I had one meeting where I had a child who was being mainstreamed in this one class and that gen ed teacher wasn't able to be there. So they took another gen ed teacher from that same grade level and brought him in. But, and I get it that sometimes schools think, well, a gen ed teacher can provide information. Like, let's say the child is not in gen ed, then we can bring any. But like, if the child is in this one class, like that's the teacher, especially if we're talking about like increasing mainstreaming, like that's so important because they can provide such a unique perspective because they can say what the child's doing because they're the only ones in that classroom because we know we can't have the aid because they right. never let him they in never, there. Yeah. So yeah, we I was just at an IEP meeting and and the child has electives and she had the same teacher for two of the electives that she had. So he didn't need to be there the entire time. Like, you know, he came in, he did his piece, he made his recommendations and it was fine. Like, you know, and you know, she's doing well with her behavior and things like that. And so that's appropriate where it's just like, okay, I can, you know, excuse that person. They're not going to be here for the entire time. But, you know, it does say, you know, at least the one. And, and it says not less than, not one. Less than one. Meaning yeah. schools, you can have more than one. Right. Okay. Right. Exactly. And or if they at the meeting say, oh, and we didn't have a gen ed teacher. Can you sign this excusal? And they didn't necessarily say that on the IEP meeting notice or give you notice of that before, then no, it's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you're allowed to say, yeah. it's not okay. I want them there. And I've had situations where I say that and they go, okay, we're going to go send a sub or maybe they have two administrators and they're going to go and do it. And it's fine. Now, if like, let's say your whole purpose of having this addendum IEP or even an annual and you're like, I really want to talk about mainstreaming and the kid's not in gen ed at all and they don't have a gen ed teacher and they say, oh, well, one's not available. My recommendation is to say, okay, well, we're going to postpone this meeting because you did not tell me in advance that a gen ed teacher wasn't going to be there. I anticipated that I was going to and it's impeding my parental participation if I'm not able to talk to a gen ed teacher right now. I'd like to reschedule. You're well within your rights to do that. Um, and same goes for any of these that we're talking about. If a school district doesn't have one of these members at the IEP team and they haven't asked you ahead of time and you haven't given consent ahead of time, they must be there. They have to be. Now, you know, things come up and we totally understand that. I was just at an IEP meeting and there was a death in the family. And so then it was someone pretty important, actually. It was a school psych. But we decided to move forward because there were certain things that we needed get to get done with the gen ed right. teachers. And, and then we had our part two. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that can't happen more than once in a year (laughs) with different people like it's just not that coincidental but anyway okay so that's the regular teacher who else needs to be there not less than one special education teacher or where appropriate not less than one special education provider of such child so you know a child's in a mild mod special day class that mild mod special day teacher should be there they may be in middle school or high school and they may have several maybe they're in one mild mod one mod severe one rsp now in the instances where a child is in general education and they don't aren't in a special day class they might have a resource specialist teacher with them or maybe they don't maybe they get speech and language and ot you still need to have a special education teacher because there may be academic goals that maybe we need to talk about different intervention and you know maybe a child's in general education and they're having some reading comprehension goals that they're just not meeting year after year and they've been in speech and language and so they don't really need a special day class but you know maybe we have to talk about rsp for this child maybe some direct pullout for that So that obviously is one that it's rare that that special education teacher isn't there. That's a a pretty given one. The fourth one is a representative of the local educational agency who is qualified to provide 
or supervise the provision of specially designed instruction to meet the unique needs of children with disabilities. That's number one. Two, knowledge about the general education curriculum. And three, knowledgeable about the availability of resources of the LEA. So more often than not, when I go to IEP meetings, they designate a principal or vice principal of that school as this admin person. While the LEA, if you are a small school district and you only have one school that could be a representative of the LEA, more often than not, that's not a district representative. So when we say LEA, local educational agency, usually in most areas, that's the school district. In some areas, it might be different. So that is a really, really important person because if we're just going through goals and everything seems to be status quo, like we might not need this person as much, but for the most part, like everyone has their role, but what happens when there's crossover? What happens when we have to decide is a RSP teacher or a speech and language therapist, who's going to deal with vocabulary or are they working together? Maybe one of them can't make that decision. They need someone guiding them. Or maybe we're talking about moving from one program to another, from a mild mod to a mod severe. Everyone at that school probably knows about the programs at that school, but they don't necessarily know about all the programs, you know, and also to be qualified, right? So they have to be qualified to understand and, and be knowledgeable about these programs. Now, that they principal can provide or vice principal may hit all right. these, yes. but, you know, it, more often than not, the number three, knowledgeable about the availability of resources of the public agency, you get a principal that says, oh, we're going to have to get back to you on that because we don't know. And sometimes, you know, it's a one of those things where then they'll send you a prior written notice. So we had kind of talked about that in the last episode. But this is a bit different because if they're just, they have no knowledge of it, they are supposed to have knowledge of it. And so then you are not that qualified of a person. And so you cannot speak to it. And we, you know, there needs to be a person that is able to kind of not necessarily make those decisions. There's IEP team decisions, but there's supposed to be somebody with that knowledge of availability of resources of the public agency. And I think that's what we encounter a lot of yeah. people that are not that yeah and when we look at representative as well other people that fall into that category when we look at the qualified to provide or supervise we're talking about our speech therapists our occupational therapists our behavior specialists our bcbas physical therapists ape teacher if there is a service being provided that representative should be there because you're providing a service they need and so again if your child is receiving speech Unless you have an excusal for that speech therapist, that speech therapist should be there. And, you know, they have knowledge about their availability, right? Or if there's another speech and language pathologist, they should have that information. So that's how that entity is covered or that number is, is covered. The next one is an individual who can interpret the instructional implications of evaluation results who may be a member of the team described above. So if there's an assessment that's being reviewed, the person who can interpret the instructional implications. So this is where we get into some trouble sometimes in the sense of a speech and language assessment was conducted. That speech therapist is unavailable on maternity leave, gone because the assessment was done in June, but we're meeting in August or September. We have another speech therapist doing the assessment. Under the law, technically, that's someone that can interpret. However, if we get into a situation where they make different recommendations and they haven't done an evaluation or they're interpreting it wrong, they're not as qualified or there's a difference of opinion, you could assert 
lack of parental participation or a denial of fate for not providing services as a result of that, but as a procedural violation, it's technically not a violation if they're qualified to interpret those results. It's a matter of the way you frame it. And so like, that's where I get parents all the time that will be like, the, the person who did the assessment wasn't there and didn't review it. And it's like, well, procedurally, it was someone who was qualified. Now, when we get into the nitty gritty, if your child was affected by the fact that that person reviewed it and they didn't do the assessment and they couldn't answer your questions. Yeah, that's what I was, that was going to say. Problem. Yeah. If they don't have any knowledge about specific questions that you have. I mean, technically, that's still OK, but it would behoove the IEP team to not have that speech and language pathologist. You know, and I get it. There's certain times when the you know, that person might not work there anymore. But that's when I think the team can make a decision of like, OK, well, let's have them do some observations. Like, because let's say yeah. it's just like the other. Or take a little bit more data. Just take a little bit more data so that that person can get to know your child. I think that's a way that you can kind of get around that if for some reason you get into that situation. And and a reason for that is let's say we're doing a behavioral assessment and the assessment's talking about aggressive behavior. And there's not a very clear definition of what aggressive behavior is. And the parent goes, I want to know, like, what does that exactly look like? Well, that person that's reviewing the assessment wasn't there. So. What did that person who did the evaluation mean by aggressive? And that's why it's important for the assessment to be very clear. But that's an example of where you might run into a problem. The sixth one is at the discretion of the parent or the agency. Other individuals who have knowledge or special expertise regarding the child, including related services personnel, as appropriate. So that's if the parent wants to invite someone that has knowledge so we've talked about this in the past anyone can be a member of the IEP team if they have knowledge um, or experience of the child so the soccer coach or a private speech therapist someone from the regional center an attorney anyone like that if the school district wants someone to come that is not technically a member in the sense of like someone else that we talked about and they want to bring someone in because they're a specialist the district still has to give a reason why that person is there The parent, on the other hand, and this is not from the statute, this is more from like case law in terms of like meaningful parental participation. If the parent wants to bring a family friend, they don't have to explain that they have experience with their child. If that's for moral support, that's allowed. The school district, however, can't just have carte blanche and having anyone there because there are confidentiality rules in terms of the child's information. So it can't just be anyone they have. And I mean, it does say including related services personnel. And so, I mean, this is where I guess those, you know, speech and language OT would more appropriately fit and the representative public agency. That's when you get a parent. I know, Amanda, this probably happened to you where they're like, oh, I've never seen that person before. And we're like, oh, they're from the district. Right. And so then what ends up happening is they instead of the agency having to necessarily explain under number six they all of a sudden just retitle that person as the representative from the local agency and that's how because they do have knowledge of maybe we're talking about different programs and so we see that a lot of times too or the child hasn't received occupational therapy before but now we're going to recommend because this occupational therapist went and did an observation because the teacher said this is an area of need, they're going to recommend an assessment or something like that. So they may be new to the team. Yeah, but oftentimes we'll see the district needing to have, we had very briefly talked about program specialists. So that's all really that they should 
be there for. They're specialists in different programs. Now, we've had several conversations with a lot of program specialists that feel like their jobs in different districts are more like a mediator or they come in and they have a different perspective. Or like if we come as attorneys, they feel like they have to come. So we've gotten to know a lot of program specialists. And it's sad because that's not their job. They shouldn't be there to do that. It's sometimes very helpful when they are. But, you know, we've thought of, you know, we wish that there was somebody, you know, that wasn't adversarial that was trying to be, you know, because sometimes, you know, when we're there as an attorney and their attorney, people clam up, they don't like to talk. And it's like a whole thing. And it's almost like we need that in between person. But we get it, you know, districts have budget restraints and things like that. But sometimes a lot of those program specialists are doing a great job insofar as what well, they can do. Well, they can be that person that's not in the classroom, so they're not in it. That can be that. And that they can kind of see things. Yes. Yeah. And then number seven, and I'm going to read this very carefully because some school districts need to understand this language okay. whenever appropriate the child with a disability. And I say that with emphasis because... I can't tell you how many times I've been to an IEP of a child that's 16 or older where the school district insists that the child must attend. And I go, no, no, no. If the parent who holds the ed rights does not think it's appropriate for that child to be there because we're talking about sensitive stuff, the parent has a right to say that they don't want that child there. Now, when the child is 18, it's now their choice. It is not an automatic thing that the school districts have to invite and have to have. It's where appropriate. So sometimes it's not appropriate. Sometimes it is. There's a lot of situations where I have, yeah, we go through assessments and we go through a lot of like progress and then we bring the kid in and then we talk about things with the kid. But we don't have them sit there partially because they shouldn't miss three hours of school for this meeting. And also because it's a very sensitive information and a lot of these IEP meetings are focused 90% on deficits things the child's not doing right. Social, emotionally, even if the child doesn't have social, emotional issues, they're going to after that meeting. <laughs> right. Now, sometimes they're very empowered to self-advocate and or they're higher functioning and it's very important for them to be there. Right. Just like we're talking about classes or transitions, 100%. But there's a lot of situations where it's not appropriate. Yeah. I remember one time I had a, I think he's a freshman and we were at, it wasn't necessarily a non-public school. It was like way out in the boonies and... A different type of school and he found out that we were there for an IEP meeting and the fire alarm went off I think and that was my client who realized that people were there talking about him and he was supposed to be part of the IEP but then he was missing and we didn't know and then the fire alarm went off and we we're like what the police were called it was like a whole thing and so yeah probably would have been nice that they didn't just drop it parents had let him know that they were going to be there but the teacher had made an off hand remark and it sent him off you know and so then that's why you know it's really important you know I have had a lot of parents you know they either don't say that they're going to be there because the child's very anxious when they're there and so they try to sneak in and sneak out and you know you got to make that known to the team because you get one person to say something and then it's all chaos and you can determine that because you are the parent of the child so I think that that's where Amanda was coming from with the trauma you know of them having it because you know people say things and you might understand it because of your experience at the IEP meetings but if your child's there and it's the first time and they hear the teacher say something about them that you know isn't necessarily bad but they don't know otherwise it is really jarring it's hard well, and especially if you're trying to figure out a solution to a problem and you're having a conversation 
maybe it's not good for them to be part of that whole conversation. You know, maybe at the end to get them to buy in, of course, but, you know, it is a very... Sometimes parents will get the issues or problems in writing from the child beforehand, and they'll say, you know what, we'll cover this, don't worry about it, you concentrate in school, and that helps a lot of the kids. Yeah, I've had situations where the kid comes in at the beginning of the meeting, and we ask, okay, what are you concerned about, what's the problem, and then they go back to class... And then we talk about it and then we go, okay, we've come up with these things. What do you think? Right. You know, because it doesn't need to be, you know, a lot of it is like formal stuff going through present levels, going through progress on goals. Like, you know, and generally for our kids that are higher functioning, like the teachers are already going through goals with them, like progress. Usually that happens and that should happen. So it's not like, oh, we're hiding information. Oh, yeah. From the them. best teachers have a conversation with right. the kiddo beforehand. Yeah. Like, what can we work on this mm-hmm. year? And mm-hmm. that's really good because they should yeah. have that input. But yeah. it doesn't mean they need to sit there for the three hours. Yeah, because then, you know, if parents get a couple of things and the teacher gets a couple of things, we get a complete picture, which is nice. Or sometimes I've had situations where we're going through assessments that have background information parents have not shared with the child yeah. yet. Parents have not shared that the child is adopted or had any kind of issues when they were younger. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that's very sensitive information, and that is for the parent to decide, not the school team. So that's really important for the teams to understand why sometimes we don't have the child there or part of the time don't have them there. Yeah, we're not trying to hide the ball. It's just, you know, there may be some information. And that may not have been communicated, but we always try to communicate that beforehand. Yeah, because there's been several times where I've had to put it in writing, and then the child is still there, and we're like, this is not appropriate. We're not moving and forward And sometimes it's traumatic for them because they're getting pulled out of class, and sometimes it's the class that is like their motivating class, and they think they're in trouble or, you know... I've had times where I've had schools insist on having a child there and I look at the child and I go, do you want to be here? And they go, no. And I go, then go back to class. Like, what are you talking about? So, I mean, so those are the IEP team members according to the IDEA. Now, we talked a lot about how people who have knowledge and experience, so that can be a lot of different people and it's really a case-by-case individualized basis, right? There might be a situation where the nurse needs to be there. If the nurse is doing an assessment, they always have to be there. But if the nurse isn't doing an assessment, but the child has a medical diagnosis or if they have a medical plan. And we try to do a health plan at there. the same time or whatnot. Like it's important to have like those people and not just there during her, you know, health assessment, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you have your school psychologist there just to review assessments. Sometimes the school psychologist is always there because they can provide right. input when you have different teachers, especially when you have a child in a gen ed class mm-hmm. and maybe you don't have a special ed teacher. Yeah. Maybe that collaboration comes from the school psychologist. It really just depends. I have some schools where we've had school psychologists say that their only job is to do assessments. Yeah, I, yeah. That makes no sense to me, but yeah. that's... The, with the one that I'm thinking of, the parents were like, good, I don't want to ever see that person because well, they didn't understand and, and it worked, you know. But part of the reason they don't understand because they don't work with the child. All they do is an assessment and then they leave. And it's like that's you're getting one piece of the puzzle only. So, yeah, it's really important, um, you know, to know who's supposed to be there, who's not supposed to be there. And, you know, you have a right to say... I'm not having this meeting because the person that I want to be there, especially if you and this is also where like we always say, like put things in writing ahead of time. If there's something you want to discuss, like as much as it is the district's obligation to have each one of these people there, like Vicky said, sometimes things happen and they go, well, we're going to have the math teacher there because the English teacher, like it was just too hard to get a sub or they have a field trip or something like that. But if you'd say ahead of time that your child's having trouble in English and you specifically want to talk to the English teacher, then they have an obligation to make sure that they're there. But if you, they don't know, cause it's just you to say, oh, I want an IEP just to have an IEP and they have six different classes. Like, you know, it's also important for you to give that information to the team. Choose your battles as well. You know, I mean, if it took, 
took a long time to schedule this IEP and it's just like, we got to change these goals. Like, you know, you might have to bite the bullet and just do it, but make sure that you're not leaving that meeting without a date for, you know, two weeks from now or whatnot. But yeah, you know us, we always say have a paper trail. It's just easier sometimes. You can't remember everything. Have a booklet, have an app on your phone. Yeah. There's technology is great. I know. Just, just do it. Something makes our jobs easier. No, I'm just kidding. It helps you guys. It helps you guys. Anyway, hopefully that was helpful. We're going to have a lot of guests, but we're always excited when you guys give us topics to talk about. So just privately message us on our Facebook group or post on our Inclusive Education Project podcast Facebook group. I know I said that twice or email us, but I wanted to say the name of it in case you didn't realize. But yeah, hopefully this was helpful and you guys keep sending us ideas so that we can keep talking. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.